Hello and welcome to the latest Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom. It's Tuesday, the 25th of January, and I'm delighted to be joined by Lahab Halkov, who is the senior contributing editor and the diplomatic correspondent of the Jerusalem Post, as well as the co-host of the Jerusalem Post podcast. Prior to this, she focused on domestic politics. So I think for today, if it's all right with you, Lahav, we'll talk about both international and uh, domestic issues on the agenda. All right. Thanks for having thank me on the show. Great. Thank you very much for, for joining us. Um, let's start perhaps with the, with the top line, the most significant uh, issue in, uh, on regional and uh, di- diplomatic issues, which are the talks going on in, uh, in Vienna over uh, Iran returning to the nuclear talks. Now, clearly, Israel is not a part of this process, but obviously has a very keen interest in, uh, in, in what uh, develops there. Just to get kind of your assessment of what there was, what's the latest going on from your reading within the Vienna talks and the likelihood of the sides reaching an agreement. Things are moving very slowly to the frustration of Western uh, diplomats. And I, I think that the UK has been pretty outspoken on this. Uh, Far, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has been pretty outspoken on this as well. Just that the Iranians have not done much to show that they're very serious about these talks and that they actually want to return to the JCPOA, which is the 2015 nuclear agreement. Um, it, you know, they came into this sort of renewed round of talks. There was, there was first, there was a very long break, like a five month break because they had an election and they were forming a new government. And, you know, a month or two is reasonable. Five months is delay tactics. Um, And then once they came back to the talks, they said they wanted to start from the drawing board. They didn't want to build on anything that the previous government had negotiated in early 2021. Eventually, they got over that hump, but there's still all kinds of delays. And and right now, the big Iranian demand is that the U.S. legally, in, in some formal way, guarantee that a future president won't leave the Iran deal, which is not something that President Biden can do. He has no legal way in, you know, under American law to guarantee that the next president will cancel the deal, especially because it's not going to be a formal treaty. A formal treaty has to be approved um, by a special majority of the Senate. And that's just not going to happen because Biden doesn't have a special majority. Um, I'd be surprised if he even had a simple majority, honestly, because there are critics in his party of the deal as well. Um, so things are moving very slowly because the Iranians keep making demands that they know that you know, are not actually fulfillable. Um, and the, the Americans, I have to say, you know, they, they're not making such crazy demands. They just want to return to the JCPOA. Um, yesterday, uh, Rob Malley, the U.S. Special Envoy to Iran, said that it will be difficult to come to an agreement if Iran is still holding four Americans hostage. I know there's also several citizens of the U.K. who are being held in Iran. Um, And but he said it, you know, he sort of hedged it. He said it'll be difficult to reach an agreement. And in the past, the U.S. had always said that these are two separate negotiating tracks. So I am skeptical that this is going to be like a sort of do or die part of the negotiations. And and another thing that makes me very skeptical about the toughness of the American stance when it comes to Iran is news that just came out over the last few days um, that Richard Nephew the deputy special envoy to Iran quit the team over differences of opinion with Mali. Now, Nephew was the architect of U.S. sanctions on Iran 
um, in 2006 to 2013, and he credits, and I think many others credit, sanctions with bringing Iran to the negotiating table in the first place. Um, and he wrote an entire book called The Art of Sanctions. He believes in the importance of sanctions, you know, in and the effectiveness of sanctions, I would say, in this situation. Um, and so the fact that he and Mali were having differences of opinion, and, and, and furthermore, the Wall Street Journal reported that specifically that Nephew wanted the US to be tougher in these negotiations and then quit because it didn't happen um, is, is disconcerting, um, certainly from an Israeli standpoint, where you know, the, the original Iran deal from 2015 wasn't tough enough. You know, so even returning to it, it's only a, a lesser evil compared to an Iran that has no restrictions. We saw at the end of last year, um, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, visiting Israel, um, which kind of broadly was, was kind of viewed as a, as a positive step to coordinate moves. How much, how do you rate kind of the Israeli traction with regard to, uh, to the US and perhaps the Europeans as well, in terms of kind of getting their points across to, uh, to, to, to display their, their concerns during the talks? I think it was better than it was the first time around, because the Obama administration hid from Israel the fact that it was even negotiating with Iran. And so that, you know, went very, very badly. And uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu saw the Obama administration as not wanting to take Israel into consideration at all and, and sort of refused to take any part of it and play with, to refuse to play ball at all when it came to U.S. Mm -hmm. and Iran uh, and the Obama administration. Now, the new government um, wants to work with the Biden administration and is trying really hard to talk to whoever will listen to them. Um, I think that they have a good line of communication with the E3, which is the UK, France, and Germany. Um, but I don't see the UK, France, or Germany going against the Americans in these negotiations. I know we've, we've had some like surprising moments in recent weeks with, with Germany and Russia, for example, but on, on Iran, you know, they're not, they're, they're not saying different things. They don't seem very independent. So the, you know, the, the fact that Israel has good lines of communication with the E3 is good and important, uh, but it seems that they're following the U.S. lead anyway, the E3. So the lines of communication between Israel and Washington are good and they're open, and Washington is trying to reassure Israel that, you know, they're, they're hearing Israel out. But hearing is not enough, right? The, for Israel, the turn, the direction in which things seem to be going is not a robust American stance in the negotiations that would continue sanctions pressure in order to ensure that Iran, first of all, doesn't, you know, enrich uranium beyond what it's supposed to. And second of all, to stop Iran's missile programs, its proxy warfare, you know, Iran, uh, Prime Minister Bennett likes to point out that Iran at this point has Israel surrounded, right? They're, they're funding Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza. They're part of the Syrian civil war, the ongoing violence in Syria. Um, they fund Hezbollah. Um, so, you know, the, that's maybe not surrounded on all ends, but they're encroaching all over. And it's, it's a problem. And this, these negotiations don't address that. Now, to begin with, its mandate was not to address that. It's true. But there needs to be some sort of robust world action against these violent and illegitimate activities by Iran. And I mean, uh, uh, last year, a British national was killed by an Iranian drone attacking a ship, um, you know, and there were a lot of very strong words coming from London, but what's the action? I mean, it's interesting, you mentioned the um, kind of the, the, 
the Iranians' uh, uh, pro proxies. Last week, we saw quite an unprecedented attack um, on the UAE by the, uh, by the, by the Houthis um, targeting uh, Abu Dhabi. And we actually saw another attempted uh, strike just on, on Sunday this week. Um, do you think this is the, the new normal? Um, and how much do you think these incidents draw Israeli-UAE ties closer together? We noted after the first incident last week that Prime Minister Bennett off offered um, security and intelligence uh, assistance. Um, do you think that could be taken up by, by the UAE? So I, I think that there already is intelligence cooperation between Israel and the UAE, and I think there already was even before there were official diplomatic relations, and I'm sure that that will continue. Um, you know, the, the Emiratis like to say that their relations with Israel are about Israel and not about anyone else, that, that they saw it as beneficial and the right thing to do to have relations with Israel. That being said, it's clear that the countries were drawn closer because of a shared enemy, which is Iran. Um, and that included intelligence sharing. So that, that for sure is going to continue. Um, but, I, but what I understand is that officials in the Gulf, um, in, in the UAE, and even in Saudi Arabia, they really appreciate how much Israel has spoken out in their support. Um, and that I think is important to the relations going forward. Now you asked if this is the new normal. For Israel, we see patterns of behavior by Iranian proxies in which, yeah, that they, they've, I, I hate to call it normal because it's evil, right? I mean, it's, it's terrorist attacks on, on civilians, um, but it, you know, where this is something that happens all the time in Israel. So I hope, I very much hope that it's not the new normal for our friends in the UAE, but it is very much possible. And what's your assessment about the, uh, the general prospect of expanding the Abraham Accords? So there are ongoing talks in different places. Um, right now, I would say that the strongest sort of situation is with uh, Indonesia. Um, there's talks going on at a lot of different levels, including very high levels. Um, and there's already cooperation happening in relation to COVID, in relation to agriculture. Um, and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke to his Indonesian counterpart when he visited them um, last year uh, about normalization. I think that most countries at this point, if they want to join in the Abraham Accords, they're going to look for some sort of strong American buy-in. That for America to say, just to say, like, we support countries normalizing ties with Israel is not enough, that they have to bring in some kind of incentive for them. Um, and so we're going to have to see if the Biden administration is willing to do that. So far, they've not really, um, at least not publicly, said anything, and I've not heard of anything behind the scenes. Yeah, it sounds more like a, uh, the, the, the Trumpian transactional approach was kind of really the, uh, the diplomatic key to getting some of those deals over the line. The question will be whether the US, um, yeah, the current I mean, US, are able to invest that same, uh, that same approach. And, uh, offer it must be said the that the, the UAE and Bahrain were not transactional. I mean, the, this whole thing with the UAE buying fighter jets from the US, there was no promise that they would get it. Um, and Bahrain really didn't, I mean, Bahrain, there wasn't even a hint of it being transactional. But the following mm. two, right, Morocco got recognition of the Western Sahara and Sudan got removed from the state sponsors of terrorists. And Sudan doesn't even officially have diplomatic relations with Israel now. So, I mean, that right. worked out very badly. But, um, you know, hopefully things will be more peaceful then and then we'll be able to 
complete that process. But uh, yeah, so mm. the UAE and Bahrain really genuinely saw benefits just in the idea of you know, having diplomatic relations with Israel, but the Trump administration set a precedent with Morocco and Sudan that other countries now would want to take advantage of. I wonder if we could turn turn our attention for a moment to Lebanon, and we won't talk about kind of the, uh, the dire straits that they're in, but there's one fascinating story that's been rumbling over the last couple of weeks um, about the, uh, the the Egyptians supplying natural gas to, uh, to, to Lebanon, which seems, at least from the, the, the base assumption here, is that same natural gas is actually the same gas that Israel is supplying to, uh, to Egypt. And so, I mean, we saw a State Department denial. What's your assessment about uh, the, uh, the original status of the gas reaching Lebanon and whether Israel is involved in that? So the talk is about Egypt and also Jordan exporting gas to Lebanon, and both of them import Israeli gas. So there would presumably be Israeli gas in the mix. You can't really separate the gas, you know, some gas from other gas in that way. Mm. Um, at this point, the U.S. denied it. It would involve um, an exception from the sanctions on Syria, and, and they have not done that. So they did not deny that they would do that in the future. Um, however, I think this whole thing started from a, a think tank that proposed it, a serious think tank. Um, the name escapes me at the moment, but it was it was something someone serious who proposed it. I think that people, you know, and that proposal was sort of reported on. And, and I think that a lot of the news reporting on this has sort of gotten ahead of itself, that it's taken an idea and is presenting it as something that's actually happening. And, and at this point, I don't think it's happening. Yes, there, there, there are a few dip, uh, domestic issues, which again, drawing on your expertise and experience on the Israeli politics, I'd love to have your, your opinion on. The first is kind of the issue of, 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 uh, of rumbling of, a, uh, of some form of, uh, of deal to be done in Netanyahu's uh, trial um, to, uh, to, to reach some form of, uh, of, of agreement there. Um, what, what do you rate the chances? Are? I mean, we understood kind of from today, yesterday, that it's not going to be done in the in the term of the current uh, attorney general. It will probably be passed on to his successor. Um, but and then yesterday we also saw Netanyahu coming out quite stridently, uh, den den denying it. Um, well, so he didn't. Can? He didn't deny that he would take any kind of plea deal. I think what he denied was very specific. He said he didn't agree to um, moral turpitude, which. Um, yeah. Which, which is a, a class of sort of crime that would not allow him to return to politics for seven years. Um, now, it, it is unlikely that he would receive any plea deal that didn't include moral turpitude, but just as I said about the State Department denial a couple minutes ago, <laughs> um, it, it's a current denial, it's not a future denial. It doesn't mean that he won't take in and it doesn't mean that he won't negotiate more. He certainly didn't deny negotiating a plea deal. I don't think that this sort of case is closed in terms of the plea deal. I think that it's still possible. Um, and also, I mean, frankly, politicians lie, so. Like, you know, it, it, this is Netanyahu's personal sort of well-being and, and what's going to happen with him and whether, whether he, frankly, he would go to jail or not. And so, you know, I think that in the end, this is uh, a decision he's going to have to make about for himself and not just for politics. And so I think that it's still open. But presumably, from the uh, from the prosecutor's perspective, um, the moral turpitude clause is is a deal breaker. That it has to include that. You can't like, one can't see a scenario where they would agree to drop that. Or do you think there is other creative ways 
around it. I don't think that they would drop that. I mean, Netanyahu's lawyers tried to negotiate like a shorter period of him not returning to politics, but like there's a law and moral turpitude mm. seven years out of politics. And I just don't think that the Knesset is going to change the law now. Um, so if there's some sort of creative arrangement, it would maybe they would say no moral turpitude, but sign an agreement that he can't run for politics for X amount of years. I, I think that that I'm not I think that that would be challenged in court. I think that would be a very difficult one. On the other side of the aisle, um, what's your assessment of the kind of how, how the coalition is working at the moment? Um, we saw a week or so ago um, the the Ram, the the Islamic Party, uh, threatened to pull away from votes voting with the with the coalition, um, and they and they didn't get the vote passed for the uh, for the for the conscription bill that, uh, that they had tried to get through. What's your what's your overall assessment kind of uh, of how on the stability of the of the coalition? So I think that there's definitely a lot of difficulties in the coalition. I think that in recent weeks, the sort of left wing of the coalition has been really, you know, if you see it as a, a rope, you know, a sort of tug of war. So the, the left mm. has been tugging on its side a little bit harder in recent weeks. Um, and that has made it difficult for the right and also for Prime Minister Bennett. Um, and there's constantly going to be this tug of war, this sort of back and forth going on because it's a coalition with people of such different political stances that need to somehow make it work. Now, Ra'am is interesting because they're, you know, it's the first time in decades that there's an Arab party in the coalition and their stances in some cases are very different from the rest of the coalition. For example, that they oppose, you know, the, the KKL, JNF, um, planting trees for Tuvishvat. I mean, and part of their opposition because of the location, it's not like they're against trees, but that's sort of something that was very symbolic um, of Zionism and that, you know, was not really deemed controversial in the past. But, you know, that that was sort of at least temporarily resolved. Um, but moving forward, there are all kinds of other things about, say, uh, illegal construction and things to legalize it. Um, you know, that going forward, that they, they seem very insistent on the things that they want, which is fine. I mean, you know, people are insistent about the things they believe in, but in politics, politics is the art of compromise. And, you know, they're, there's going to have to be a point where they are going to have to compromise. It's not to say that they haven't compromised at all, but in recent weeks, they, it seems like they're done with it. Like they're not compromising. Mm -hmm. We'll see, we'll see moving forward if this phase sort of ends with, the dissolution of the coalition, which which I don't think is like imminent, or if they understand that they need to compromise again. And perhaps you could explain something. There was a talk when the when the government lost the uh, the the it fell on the first reading to pass the conscription law. Usually, when the government loses that, it takes another six months to reintroduce it. But they're hoping to find a way to get it back onto the uh, on, on, onto the uh, Knesset floor within two or three weeks. Is that possible? How do they? How are they able to do that? I think they would have to make changes to to the bill itself, you know, find different ways to reword it and change some of the details um, in order for it to come back. Either that or they'd have to claim some sort of error, some sort of voting error, um, which I have not heard about, but it is mm. possible that they could come up with something. <laughs> okay um fine well we will uh, we will wait to see what uh, what develops there um and one final area which is i think very interesting 
Now, the talks that have been going on between, uh, although these are not formal political negotiations, but the talks that have been going on nevertheless sort of at a high level between Israel and Palestinian authority figures. We saw at the end of December, uh, Defence Minister Gantz hosting uh, um, Chairman Abbas at his home. Um, and just on Sunday, we saw another senior minister, um, Al-Shaykh, meeting with the foreign minister, uh, Lapid. Um, what do you think is going on there? Like I said, this coalition is made up of, of sort of left and right in different positions. And the center and the left, uh, they support a two-state solution. And the right does not. And the position of this coalition is that they're not going to make any drastic moves in either direction when it comes to the Palestinians. So there's not going to be negotiations for two states for, you know, Israel's not going to withdraw from any territory. But also, unlike the previous governor, I guess it was no, it was the previous government. It's so confusing with four elections in two years. Uh, but unlike the previous government, they're not going to try to annex any territory. So it, it leaves a situation of limbo. And for people who do support a two-state solution, a lim- this, you know, not doing anything is not satisfying either because time goes on. People are living here. The friction still exists. And so if even if they can't negotiate, they want to maintain proper and decent relations uh, with the Palestinians. And so, you know, at the highest levels, that's meeting with senior Palestinian officials. Um, so Gantz did that. And with Gantz, there was always kind of, a, I don't want to call it an excuse, but there's, I don't know, you could call it a pretense, I guess, that, you know, he's defense minister and the military is a, officially governs Judea and Samaria, the, the West right. Bank. And so there are issues to be worked out between him and Abbas. For Lapid, I do think that it's it's really just symbolic. It's really just to say, I support this and I'm part of this and I want there to be negotiations once it's possible. And, but, he, but he's also said kind of contrary to that, that he won't, because he understands the, uh, the bandwidth of the, uh, of the coalition, that if and when he takes over in, uh, in August 23, that he won't be, uh, he doesn't anticipate kind of a change in, change in policy and, and renegotiation. Or do you think that's right. also just well, because support? Right. Well, like he, he, that's what I meant by if, when it's possible, right? It's not right. possible to have negotiations for a two-state solution in this coalition or really in any coalition that you would have out of this current Knesset because a sizable majority does not want a two-state solution. Okay, Lahav, thank you so much indeed for your time today. That was a fantastic uh, tour around some of the issues. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.